0: We are over in First Kings chapter six, still looking at the temple. We got the outside built, now we're on the inside. Two times in these uh, chapters it talks about the temple being finished the chapter four that once, the first time is that the outer walls, the shell was finished. the second time was talking about the inside because you all know once you put up the walls there's still more to do. and so that's where they're they're out here right now. We're at 1 Kings chapter 6. We saw the temple walls being built. There was a uh, general outline of what the temple would be. They patterned, of course, a lot of it after the, ta- the tabernacle that God had given them. Uh, David says in 1 Chronicles 28 that by the Spirit, uh, some, some of the pattern of the temple was revealed to him. But there's a whole lot of foreign influence on the, as far as the shell was concerned. And we talked to you about uh, another temple that was built at uh, the folks of Tyre had built there and how much that had uh, they seemed to be very similar but anyway the insides were certainly unique to the worship of God and we uh, at least I strongly suspect that's why God is going to build the tabernacle of David more than the tabernacle or the temple of Solomon when he comes back. Because uh that's the one that I think he likes the best this is the, this has a little bit too much foreign God influence on it, but um, it is uh, fairly spectacular. We do have some some pictures oh I did forget the no, we have it in there okay good. we got the movie and the uh and the jPEG that's there, and you have some time we're not going to be using those, but we'll walk we have a walkthrough of one artist rendition of the temple. understand it's an artist rendition of it, and uh some parts are, of course are going to be. Pretty, pretty set as far as the uh, inner chamber, the holy, the holy place, and the holy of holies, and those things we uh, we know pretty much what they look like. But um, some of the outer parts of it, we're not quite sure. And if you look at uh, one person's rendition of it to another, you're going to see some variance in it, and uh, that's all upon them to do that. But in uh, we left off at 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse fourteen last time, so we'll jump over to fifteen. And he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards, from the floor of the temple to the ceiling. He paneled the inside with wood. And he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. So what he what he did was he took all the, the stone is visible from the outside. But on the inside the and you're gonna see this in the verses here, no stone is visible. You cannot see any stone. Some people want to uh, relate that to uh, a stony heart, and I don't know. I think it's kind of pushing a little bit for me, but anyway, you see no stone on the inside. The wood planks cover all of the stone, and then there's uh, some stuff put on top of that, which we'll we'll get to. Then he built the cedar. Um, so then then he built the twenty cubit room at the rear of the temple, from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. He built it inside as the inner sanctuary, as the most holy most holy place. And in front of it, the temple sanctuary was forty cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with ornamental buds and opened, op- open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. So that was the goal that they had. That's not necessarily God's goal. That was their goal that they put up to uh, to make sure that none of this was was seen. Uh, I was trying to do some research. Thinking enough of this done, you can kind of do this on your own. What's God's favorite wood? Yeah, I don't think it's cedar. I don't think anything that God ever asked for was ever made in cedar. But this one is. So it it may be that the cedar is Solomon's favorite wood. That's because he has to go outside of Israel to get it. He has to go and made that that very expensive uh, treaty that would last over 20 years with Hiram to bring this stuff down. But um, I don't know. I I think everybody has a favorite wood, right? Uh, I know I have a couple of favorite woods, uh, most of which I don't work with. But um, sometimes you get some some nice ones. I, if there's, there's some woods that are more fragrant than others. And once in a while, I run some uh, yellow pine through our uh, processing that we have in there. And you can tell when you walk out in the shop if I've been planing yellow pine because that stuff smells wonderful. It has some uh, drawbacks in working with it, but it, it smells wonderful. And if I, I plane cedar, cedar has a smell to be yellow pine outdoes the cedar. That stuff is something else. I'll tell you what, I could plane that all day long and just have a good time. That stuff really smells nice. But um, God must have a favorite, a favorite wood. I don't, if, there's wood that he asked for for the ark. That was probably more functional than it was uh, beautiful. But there are other things that he asked for certain types of wood on. And if you wanted to go do some some looking around. I, just, I don't think so, that uh, cedar was one of them. But you can go check that out on your own and, and see uh, verse 19, and he prepared the inner, sanctu- the inner sanctuary inside the temples to set the ark or the covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits high, and 20 cubits uh, uh, long, high, and wide. The, if you want to get a, a rough conversion for a cubit, is just figure out one cubit for two feet. That's not exactly it, but it's close enough it gives you an idea. You're, you're going to be off by a few inches here and there, but... It just, if, if you just want to get a, a real quick conversion, let's just do this in the fastest way possible, that just think uh, one cubit e- equals about two feet. That's all the stuff I was looking at. I says oh, it looks like uh, one cubic equals about two feet in there. And so that's, um, at least according to if I was using Dakes as a, whatever he was using. I was using his stuff in there. And so it looks like that's the conversion he was using. It's, like I said, it's not exactly, it might be, uh, it's a few inches off one way or the other, and I'm, I don't remember which one it was. but Anyway, we'll give you some exact measurements on a few of these verse uh, 21 so solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold he stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold the whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple also he overlaid the gold and the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary inside the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood each ten cubits high one wing of the cherubim was five cubits the other wing of the cherubim five cubits ten cubits from tip of one wing to the tip of the other. Well, 10 cubits apiece, 20 cubits is the width of it. And the other cherubim was 10 cubits. Both cherubim were on the same size and shape. The height of one cherubim was 10 cubits, and so was the other cherub. And then he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of one touched one wall, and the wing of the other cherubim touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold, and he carved all the woods, all the walls of the temple all around both the inner and outer sanctuaries with carved figures and cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. So ever see those things that have palm trees all over the place, you know, they give a nice little uh, flair to it? Apparently um, Solomon wanted that for the temple as well. And so you have the palm trees, the cherubim, open flowers. These are all carved into the walls. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold both the inner and outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. And lintel and doorpost were one-fifth of the wall. The two doors were of olive wood. And he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers and overlaid them with gold. He spread gold on cherubim and on the palm trees. So for the door of the sanctuary he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-f- one-fourth of the wall. And the two doors were cypress wood. Two panels comprised one folding door and two panels comprised the other folding door. Then he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them. You can see the theme there. And over, Now, this is not like wallpaper you're going to change out. This is, uh, <laughs> you better be happy with this because this is going to be around for a while. And he overlaid them with gold, applied evenly on the carved work. And he built the inner court and in the three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the 11th year, the month of Bu, which is the 8th month, the house was finished in all its details according to all its plans. So he was 7 years in building it, actually 7 years and 6 months. Because the month of Ziv is the 2nd month, the other one is the 8th, so it's 7 years and 6 months that he spent working on this to get all this done, carving all these things into the walls, overlaying everything with gold. So you have gold on the walls, gold on the floor, gold on the ceiling, gold on the instruments, pretty much gold all over. You better like gold, because when you walk in, that's all you're going to see. Now imagine walking on gold. I guess you know in heaven you're going to be walking on gold, I guess, but it's going to be a different type of gold. But gold down here is a little bit softer. They may have mixed something into it to make it a little bit harder for when you walked on it. But uh, there's gold all over the place. So you want to talk about extravagance. You look outside and you see a lot of stone, but you go inside and you see a whole lot of gold. That's uh, that's how they did this. Seven years in building it. It was a uh, it was quite the expensive building. I took the figures from Dakes again. He'd spent time figuring all this up. Why in the world reinvent the wheel? His figures the total cost of the temple were one hundred and seventy four billion dollars. That's in Dakes day. So convert from Dakes which was fifty some years ago to today, that's at least double that, right? I think probably more than double that. I don't know, what were the salaries back 50 years compared to what the salaries are now? So uh, probably more than doubled. You're you're looking at a whole lot of money. I was looking at some of the churches that are out there today and some of the uh, extravagance that people had had done, and uh, I was going to bring that a uh, copy onto somebody who had had uh, relayed a whole bunch of stuff. You know, 12 million on this building. Uh, 20 million on this building. One church spent 53 million dollars to relocate. <laughs> 53 million dollars just to relocate, and uh, they they had started with a few people. They had grown to I think uh, uh, what was it about? Uh, um, if I remember, I think about 7,000. They had paid 53 million dollars to relocate to another place, and they grew to about 15,000. So that's a lot of money. And A lot of times we get hung up on the money and we, we look at this. Apparently Solomon is not hung up on the money. <laughs> he does not have a problem with this. But look at the, the different ways of doing it. David's way of doing this was to take money from the enemies and use it to the house of God. Solomon's way of doing things was to take money from the people of God to build the house of God. And they weren't complaining under David. David went out, and if he needed more money, he went out and he conquered these people. He took all their gold and silver. If he needed more money than that, he went out and conquered these people. and took all their gold and silver and brought it on back. And he started you know, adding all this stuff up. And then when Solomon came in, he's not conquering anybody. Of course, there wasn't too many more people to conquer. David had pretty much done it all. But people are paying them, so he's taking money from from that. And he's also asking Israel to... We, we went over how much they were doing last time, which was quite a bit. Uh, so much so that when the next king came up, they said, You've got to make this a little bit lighter. We're doing too much. And he decided not to do that. But we think about this as extravagance. Uh, were they ever reprimanded for being too extravagant? Did God ever say, you did too much gold? <laughs> you spent too much money? I had all those carved things in the walls, you know, that's just, that's a little much. We never see anything. God never complains about us doing things too big for him. But there are people who do. And if you think about the New Testament... There was one time when someone was doing something very extravagant, Mm -hmm. and only one person raised an objection. Maybe other people were thinking it, Mm -hmm. but only one person spoke it. Mm -hmm. That person's name was Judas. And who was he of at that point? He was, he was, was he of his father God anymore? No, he had switched camps. He switched over. He had gone to the other side. In fact, that was the thing that pushed him even more over to the other side. And then he went over to the chief priest and he bargained for the the price. But he had already gone over. That was just the thing that pushed him over the the rest of the way. So when we see people who are complaining about all these churches spending so much money on things or pastors or ministers spending so much money on, on different things, whose spirit are they of? I don't know why people don't get that idea. They, they read the New Testament. They see that Judas was was making a, a stink. Who would you rather be be, be uh, associated with? Someone like Judas? Or someone like the woman who brought the stuff in? Amen. Who is Jesus more pleased with? I'd rather be on the side that Jesus was pleased with. Uh, as I was talking about at the beginning of the church on Sunday. I, I, I didn't get to talk to her about who she was talking about, but I, I kind of had my assumption on, <laughs> on who it was. But you know, you got them people that are picking on uh, Brother Creflo for his plane. I, I know Brother Keith said, if uh, uh, all you got to do is start believing God for a jet airplane, and you should see the kind of mail you get. Because <laughs> he had to believe God for that. that did, I, I don't know, did I tell you that story about Brother Keith? And when he had to believe God for an intercontinental airplane? He had to believe God for an intercontinental airplane. And he started off with the prop plane, and then he had to get over to the jet plane. And then God started dealing with him about a, a plane that would travel from one continent to another and go overseas and so forth like that. And God told him, I didn't tell you this story? Oh, it was a neat story. <clears throat> God had told him this. He said, because he, said, uh, he, he was arguing with God. He said, well, God, why do I need an intercontinental airplane or a jet plane? Why do I need that? And God says, because if I say I need you in Tokyo tomorrow, I need you to get there. He said, okay, <laughs> that's good enough for me. So he believed God for an intercontinental jet plane and received it and got it. And I don't think he had it for a week. It was a very short period of time. He had it anyway. And, and he got a call. We need you in Tokyo tomorrow. And he got to Tokyo that next day and a door opened up once he was in Tokyo to go over to China and preach the gospel over. And I did tell you that story. I love that story. I thought that was, that was fantastic. And, you know, you'll have the people who say that's too much money to spend. Well, how many lives got changed? How many lives yeah, got altered? Man. Because the man of God was able to get over the seas and do the thing that he was able to do. That's a whole lot better than, uh, you know, uh, Johnson & Johnson being able to fly their president from one place <laughs> to another. Uh, I'm, that's good that they can do it. And that's fine. I, I won't ever pick on them for having airplanes or jet planes or anything like that. They uh, need to do it. They, that works out for their place. Great. Go out there and get one. They make their own money. They can go out there and do things. But... God's people, if they want to send money into Brother Creflo or Brother Keith or whoever else is believing God for an airplane or a bigger building or or a fleet of buses or whatever it might be, God put that on their heart. If it's not on your heart, don't participate. That's it. But don't sit there and talk about them. That's just not a good thing to do. You just just do not want to get on that side of things. Because God is a God of extravagance most of the time. If you look at heaven, it is extravagant. It is something else. And God's not so much uh, as, you know, Judas' his reason, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? Mm-hmm. Jesus' opinion on that is the poor you will have with you always. Yes, you will. You're going to have lots of poor people. That They're always there. It's, just, it's a mentality that people pick up. It's not just a condition. It's a mentality that people pick up. A lot of the things that we have in this country, uh welfare, food stamps, stuff like that. They only go to feed the mentality. They don't help the problem. I heard somebody counting up the way back was in the 60s. They started the world on poverty. And if you look at how many trillions of dollars have been spent on the world on poverty, we still have just as many poor people. That has not changed because you're not changing the attitude. Another example you can see over in Haiti. Haiti is a real poor nation because it's their mentality. We have sent how much money over there to Haiti? other countries to send how much money over to Haiti. Not telling people to, to stop sending money over to help these folks out or anything like that, but just sending money is not changing their attitude. you got to get the gospel inside of them. you got to get the idea that, hey, you can become somebody. Stop relying on other people. It's, um, I, heard, I saw that uh, video that was flying around. I think it was on Facebook or something like that. The woman who was coming out of, I don't even know where she was, what state or where she was at, coming out of some welfare office or... And and just yelling because uh, the people inside there weren't going to pay her rent. And I guess they had been paying it for years. And she's yelling at the TV person, the the reporter outside, who's going to pay my rent? Who's going to pay my rent? Uh, Somebody said, I'm not sure if he he said it, how about if you do? (laughs) That didn't go over so well. I'm sure you can idea. But you see, it's a mentality and you feed that mentality and people begin to think, well, other people should be taking care of my rent. Other people should be buying my food. Other people ought to be paying for my TV. I heard one person who constantly keeps saying this is we still have just as many poor people, but the poor people have big screen TVs, cell phones, they're eating good and their rent's paid. <laughs> well, there's not much reason to go out there and get a job and do much of you if you have all that. But these same people will be picking on pe- folks who are Spending things on the house of God, doing things in the um, kingdom, buying jet airplanes or or whatever else that they need to get the thing done. If God's in it, Amen. let them go. Amen. You know, if God's not, I mean, not every, not every minister needs a jet airplane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some people just want to get it for maybe their own glory or, or something. But if God's telling you, I need you to do this, I need you to get this, He'll He'll supply the way. But, of course, you always have the people that are around that are picking on, on, uh, on other folks. And, uh, just don't need to do that. Well, let's go on here. The gold in the temple, all the, all the money that's spent on the gold in the temple. You know how long this, this will last? The gold in the temple will last until the fifth year of Rehoboam's reign. Almost 35 years. Almost 35 years it lasts. And then the king of Egypt comes in, Pharaoh, and he uh, takes all the gold stuff out of there. He takes the gold shields. He, He comes in there and strips it clean. And they don't have any more gold. 35 years is all it lasted. The reason it only lasted 35 years is because of their disobedience, not their extravagance not because they put too much in it. It's because they were not obedient and did not obey what God said to do. Because Solomon led them into a place of idolatry. And Rehoboam didn't help too much out in getting the country back again. Well, we go on in chapter 7, verse 1. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. Now, I'm not sure why it took 13 years to build his house and only seven and a half years to build the house of God. I have two ways to go. The Word of God does make note of this. It took seven and a half years to build the house of God. It took 13 years to build this. Could be two reasons. One reason could be that all the labor was dedicated to the house of God. Because we want to get this built. And they, they did everything they could to, to get that thing going. So all, the bulk of the labor may have been put towards the house of God. That was the top priority. Well, if you take two-thirds of your labor force or three-quarters of your labor force and dedicate it to one project and only a small part dedicated to the other, well, one's going to get built a whole lot faster. The other one is that Solomon's house is more extravagant than the house of God is. I don't know which one is true. (laughs) I just know that there's a difference here. Seven and a half years to build the house of God, 13 years to build his house, and the Word of God makes mention of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he finished all his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width was 50 cubits, and its height was 30 cubits. It's a little bigger than the house of God, with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. Now, what is the house of the forest? (laughs) He already built his palace. He has the palace that David lived in. He's got his palace that he just spent 13 years on, and then he's got this other one. Yeah, he got a summer place. So it's it's either that it's either a summer place for him to go, or it's where he put all the wives. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they don't get quite as much space as Solomon gets but uh, they, they go over there maybe he just says I don't want you living with me I just want you going over there and we just know it's the house of the forest of Lebanon and it was paneled with cedar above the beams and there were on 45 pillars 15 to, to a row there were windows with beveled frames in three rows and, and, uh, and, and window was opposite I'm sorry and window was opposite window in three tiers And all the doorways and posts had rectangular frames, not sure why that's important, but we have rectangular frame windows, and the window was opposite window in three tiers. He also made the hall of pillars, its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits, and in front of them was a portico with pillars, and a canopy was in front of them, and he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge, judge. and it was paneled with cedar. From floor to ceiling, so everything pretty much has cedar. So, what wood do you think is Solomon's favorite wood? It seems to be cedar. And the house where he dwelt he had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. Solomon had made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter when he had taken when he had taken as wife. So the queen, the Pharaoh's daughter, gets her own house. If the house of the forest of Lebanon was for the rest of the wives, and the rest of the wives lived there, she lives here, and Solomon lives in his place. <laughs> so, you want to talk about extravagant, where we spent all that on the house of God, then we got a house for the, for the wives or the summer house, we got the house for the, the palace for the, the queen, and we got my own house, which we spent 13 years building. That is a lot of building. Now, remember, the contract with uh, Hiram was for 20, uh, 20, 21 years. That's a lot of years of building. And these people were, in, there was a, a labor force there. There was forced labor. There were people of Israel that were put into labor. All these things were, were going on. All these were of costly stones, cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out from the foundation of the... Eaves And also on the outside of the, to the great court, the foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits and some 8 cubits. Well, if you've got uh, you know, your quick measurement, 10 cubits, 20 feet by 16 feet, mm-hmm. it's a pretty good size. And above were costly stones hewn to size and cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court, the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. Now, King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. It's not Hiram, and it's spelled differently in the New King James Version than it is in the King James Version. But if you went to the King James Version, it's spelled exactly like King, the King of uh, Tyre. But it's not the same guy. You might have the same name. I'm sure that uh, people named their kids after kings that they liked or stuff like that. But Anyway, he was a worker of bronze. And so they went and they got him. He was... uh, well known for being able to work with bronze. I mean, you see some of the projects he took on. You'll understand why we, we got somebody like that. So he takes him from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Nephtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high. And a line of of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. I think I put that in your outline. It's uh, 37 feet high and about 25 feet around. That is a pillar. (laughs) 25 feet in the the circumference of it and 37 feet high. That is quite a pillar. These were such substantial pillars they had names. (laughs) Then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on top of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits. The height of the other capital was five cubits. He made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top, and thus he did for the other capitals. The capitals on the two pillars, he had pomegranates above by the convex surface, which was next to the network. And there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin, And he set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. The tops of the pillars were in the shapes of lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. Now, the, the, the first name Jochen uh, means he or God will establish Boaz is in him God is strength. So that's what those two names mean. That's what we called them. So when you came on by, you didn't just walk by two pillars. You said, ah, there's Boaz. (laughs) And uh, And he made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Below its brim were ornamental buds. And circling all around, ten to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, three looking toward the east. What does that remind you of? When the children of Israel camped, there were three tribes who faced north, three tribes who faced south, three tribes who faced east, three tribes who faced west. It's patterned after that. All the back parts of the, uh, the bulls were inward. It was uh, their faces that were facing out. It was a hand breadth thick, and its brim was was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. So here's the measurements of this. It's the Sea of Bronze. It's about 10 and a half feet tall. It's almost 21 feet across. I think it's uh, 20 feet 10 inches if you want to be specific. I just kind of rounded it up for you here. 62 and a half feet around the circumference. It weighed about 25 to 30 tons. It was filled with 16,750 gallons of water, which then would make it weigh about 100 tons. The small levers held about 300 gallons each. and Jewish writers say that the water was changed daily so as to always have pure water for use in the ceremonial worship. 16,750 gallons of water changed out daily. Now, some of it was used, but the rest of it you had to change out. Now, we don't have a hose. (laughs) You don't have a hose. So, um, (laughs) remember that the the, the folks that they had there as as, uh, slave labor, because they uh, decided to surrender, made the covenant with Israel back in Joshua's day. They became haulers of water. Well, you know who did it. 16,750 gallons of water a day. Water generally weighs around 10 pounds a gallon. I know that because of uh, fish tanks. We have to keep all that in in mind. About 10 pounds per gallon for the water. That's a whole lot of carrion. That's a whole lot of carrion. So they had this water there for the the worship, the leavers. Were, were, were there, and they were used to uh, wash the blood off of instruments and uh, things like that, so it became pretty bloody. Verse 27, he also made 10 carts of bronze. Most of, most of the stuff outside is made out of bronze, and we, when we went to the temple, we talked about that. The bronze was uh, uh, symbolized uh, the sin, and then inside the gold symbolized the removing of sin, so there was no bronze used inside the temple. The bronze was used outside the temple, and that was all symbolic. Uh, Verse 28, And this was the design of the carts. They had panels, and the panels were between frames. On the panels that were between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames was a pedestal on top. Below the lions and oxen were wreaths of plated work. Every cart had four bronze wheels, and axles of bronze and its four feet had supports. Under the layer were were supports of cast bronze. Beside each wreath, its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, one and a half cubits in outer diameter. And also in the opening were engravings, but the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were the four wheels, and the axles of the wheels were joined to the cart. The height of the wheel was one and a half cubits. Now, these are on wheels, but don't get the idea that they wheeled them around all the time. They didn't do it. They wheeled them into place, and they pretty much stayed there. And we're going to show you a picture that will give you an idea of what these look like. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze. And there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Each support, its supports were part of the cart itself. On the top of the cart, at the height of, the, height of a, half, a cubit, it was perfectly round. And on the top of the cart, its flanges and its panels were of the same coating. On the plates of its flanges and on the panels, he engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Wherever there was a cedar wherever there's a clear space on each, with wreaths all around. So if you had clear space, we filled it up with palm trees, lions, cherubims, such things. Then he made the ten carts. All of them were the same mold, one measure and one shape. Then he made ten levers of bronze. Each lever contained 40 baths. And each lever had four cubits. One each of the ten carts was a lever. Now, if you go up online and you start doing some searches for all this sort of stuff, you're going to get artist renditions of these things, and they're all going to look a little bit different. But um, anyway, there were 10 levers. Some suppose that these represent the fingers of God. Do we have that picture that I gave you? Can we put that up there on the screen? I just want to show you why people think that this looks like the finger of God. Yep. Yep, the only picture that's in there. The other one is a uh, um, movie, basically. Uh, You could have imported it right into the, the program and would have put it right up there on the screen. All right, well, we'll go on with this. Some supposed to represent the fingers of God. You'll see why here when you see the picture of this, how they were laid out on there. Uh, and when you talk about the hand of God being used in the, in the, in the word, the, com- the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God, and their number is 10. The plagues are said to be the hand of God, and their number is 10. You're going to see this theme go on through here quite a bit. And these, of course, are going to have 10 as well. Therefore, the washing of, off of the blood from the offerings. So uh, I guess they would probably change that water out on a regular basis too. <laughs> I would think they'd be pretty uh, bloody after all the, all that stuff on, uh, on a time. All right, there we go. So here we have the. the well, there's two different drawings here. I was trying to find out why did you guys do this in two different drawings, but I, I, they're either trying to say that these could be done this way or they could be done this way. But you're getting a side view of the pillars. Instead of a top U over in here, I, I I don't know why we we put the pillar there like that, but anyway, these are the levers, five of them, right in whichever one you want to look at. You got five of them there. and That's why it's it's thought of as the fingers of God, because you got the arms, and then the the hands. This is where all of the priest, these are the priest cells, so these are the people who did the work of God, and then the hands would be. Out in here, that's why they uh, they they call it that way. You have the the porch, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. There is a holy place, and there is a holy of holies. Holy place is not the holy of holies. The holy of holies is where you go in one time a year. That's where the priest had the uh, rope tied on him, the bells on the bottom, and he would walk on in there. And if uh, if you didn't hear, keep hearing tinkle, 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 or if you heard tinkle, 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 thud, then you just start pulling the rope because you can't go in there and get them. <laughs> can't go in there and and pull them out. So uh, that's what we would do with that. But that's how the temple was, was laid out. If you see some of the pictures there, you're going to see these outer parts at a shorter height than this part. There's going to be windows up here at the top. Those windows let the light in. There's windows down here on these ones as well. But uh, that light doesn't come into here. It's just the light from the top. Over here that comes down into the holy place. And I imagine also the holy of holies. I'm not sure if the windows also uh, worked out into there as as well or not. This is the altar, the bronze altar that you hear about. This is uh, uh, where this would sit. And this is the bronze sea that would be over in here. So there you got your, your bulls facing this way and all the water in over here. So that's how it was, was laid out. You see, it, just about every picture has this burning and smoke coming up from the bronze altar and, uh, and so forth. If we have that video ready to go, go ahead and, uh, and show that. It's like a five-minute video. It's going to give you a virtual tour. Again, it's an artist's rendition of what the temple may have looked like. So it just gives you an idea of, of uh, what that would be like. So we'll go with this. That for a we'll let you pause. Uh, I, was, I told him to do that a little bit too late. But did you see that big wall that's all around in here? It's called the Temple Mount. And what they did with that is this is built on a mountain, Mount Moriah, and there is not a, enough flat area there to build the temple on. And so what they did was they built this wall all the way around so they can make a huge flat area and thereby have enough uh, foundation for the the temple and some other things that were out over here. But that's why you see this this whole thing. So the wall is just basically a retaining wall to keep dirt, rock, stuff like that, stuff that would be a foundation, so that when you put the temple over in here, that that had a place, because it's on a mountain, and mountains aren't known to be flat. So you had to flatten it yourself. So that's why you see that there. Go ahead. All right, stop for just another minute. This is the only renditioning I've seen that has this tower this tall. I don't see anybody else, but this is the best one I could show you for the inside. Most of them have this taller, but sometimes it's wider, but it is usually shorter than than this part. So this is the part, the windows that are going into the holy place. They don't have any windows back here into the holy of holies, and these are the priest chambers. I know you have your three levels of of windows just like you saw in some of the other uh, places. This is the brazen altar, and then this would be the bronze sea. Go ahead. And those are the pillars. Now they put the levers in a different place than the other picture did. of of the showbread. Roll all around. You, the contents, but as far as I can tell, they're missing a few things. The bowls of the (laughs) man. Yeah, they did a nice job with that. It was uh, one of the better ones I saw. There, again, that that front part I don't think was was that tall. I'm not sure why they put it in there that tall, but that's what they had had done. Uh, verse 39. And he put five carts on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house. Doesn't really say what the order of them was. That's why you'll see different uh, renditions, uh, different pictures of them. He set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. Harum made the levers lavers and the shovels and the bowls so Hiram finished doing all the work that was to do for king solomon for the house of the lord the two pillars and the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars and the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals which were on top of the pillars 400 pomegranates for the two networks two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars the ten carts is decorating the top of the pillars there. The ten carts, the ten levers on the, on the carts, one sea, twelve oxen under the sea, the pots, the shovels, and the bowls, all these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon, for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. In the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Sukoth and Zeratan, and Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of, of gold, both of the doors of the inner room, Most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. So, all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated the silver, and the gold, and the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So, that's the extravagance of the temple, extravagance of the kingdom. And I put this note in your your outline there God is not against splendor, but as the grandness of a building or other thing about showing God's greatness or ours, and that's what has to be determined, and it's not for other people to determine. It's not for other people to say that this church, this pastor, this group, this minister is doing this for himself. Uh, You let God take care of that. If they're doing it for themselves, they won't last very long. If they're doing it because they want the glory, God doesn't share his glory, they won't last very long. But if they are not doing it for, for that, if they are doing it for the glory of God. You, boy, don't get on the bad side. Don't get on the side where you start start talking about all that stuff. It's uh, it's just not worth it. It's uh, if you, God's a big guy. If he's got a battle to fight, he don't need our help. But let's not get on the uh, on the side that we're we're fighting against God. And because uh, God is not against things being grand, great, spectacular. He's not afraid of that. And uh, we shouldn't be either. We don't have to be, we don't have to uh, adapt a life of poverty. God does not adapt a life of poverty. If you look, have uh, looked at what heaven is about. Heaven is not poor. And God is not up there building shacks for everybody. He's a, he's a, he's a rich God. He's a great God. And we're going to do things for him, we should do it in a grand scale. And you know, if people are out there and they have a vision to do things in a grand scale, don't get in their way. If uh, God shows you to be a part of it, be a part of it, but uh, don't don't get on the bad side. Don't get on the side of being critical of all that sort of stuff. It's Because uh, you look at the temple, it's wow. <laughs> now, God didn't ask for all of that, but he did ask for some of it. Uh, a lot of the gold that he He asked for, he says, all right, this is going to be gold, 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 this is going to be bronze, this is going to be bronze. He, uh, he called all that stuff out. Now, David, of course, under his reign, bronze had no value. It was too common. I think it didn't even silver get that, to be that way. I think even silver got to the point that it, was, it had very little value, if any at all. Gold was still considered to be valuable. But they're cutting big stones out of precious stones, not just, not just rocks. They are, um, they're doing something else. And Solomon did not have a poor view of his God. He built a very extravagant house for himself for his wife or his wives <laughs> and uh, as well as for his God. But um, just because somebody is doing something great, just because is doing something extravagant does not mean they're missing God. Amen. Just on, on that span of it. Father, we thank you for the pattern of your word. Thank you for the things you teach us in the design of the tabernacle, the design of all the pieces, the altars and just all the things that they represent. Father, we see as Solomon put all this together, he did not have a poor view of his God, but he had a great one. We thank you, Father. We can adopt the same thing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.